Hello, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Ontario AgCast. I'm your host, Wendell Shum. For this week's show, we are using the magic of Skype to go all the way to Australia to chat with James Stacy, a former dairy farmer who milked cows when Australia had supply management and then through the deregulation of the Australian dairy industry. Before we jump into the conversation with James, I do want to mention an exciting new initiative we've been working on. We've connected with a couple other podcasts, Tim Hamrich, the Future of Agriculture podcast, and Rob Sharkey, the Shark Farmer podcast, and are working on a project that will appeal to you if you enjoy hearing the conversations that are happening in ag, and particularly if you have ever thought about starting your own show. Keep in touch for updates over the next few weeks, and now, the Ontario AgCast with James Stacy. James, welcome to the show. How you going? Good to be talking to you this morning. What time is it in Australia? Nearly 8, 8 a.m. in the morning, so yeah, today's looking like about 28 degrees, and it's just nice and still this morning, and it's a beautiful day. Well, you suck, just for starters. (laughs) So, James, one thing I've always wanted to ask an Australian if I talk to him, have you ever punched a kangaroo in the face? No, I haven't punched a kangaroo in the face, but my wife hit a kangaroo on the way home from work the other night, so there's a couple of thousand dollars damage down the side of the car for that one. So kangaroos are are part of our landscape and in our farming environment and where we we move around in our vehicles. And, yeah, I haven't punched one, but, yeah, sometimes they're pretty annoying when they hit your cars. Wow. Yeah, see, for us, we see kangaroo at the zoo, it's a pretty big deal, but I guess for you guys, it's more like a pest. Yeah, it's more like you guys seeing a moose or a elk or something in Canada, I suppose. You'd be surprised how rarely I hit moose or elk, just to be fair. <laughs> okay, James, where are you located? I live in, in South Australia. The township I live near is called Langhorn Creek. It's about 60 kilometres southeast of Adelaide, which is the capital of South Australia. So if you if you look at a map of uh, Australia, we're in the the centre of the bottom of Australia, if, if you get what I understand. So we're in a the southern part of Australia. It's a Mediterranean style climate. So yeah, we get rain over winter and and hot and dry conditions over the summertime. So that's where I live. Like we're in a a region where I obviously was a dairy farmer in a past life but it's an area where there's irrigated horticulture like wine grapes and fruit and vegetables and almonds and things like that and um, broadacre cropping is probably the predominant thing that happens in this region but being located about 60 kilometers from a capital city you've also got the the urban sort of encroachment on our agricultural land in this area so a lot of commuters will travel from this area to work in the city. Do you have a lot of row crops? I grow um, loosened seed, cereal crops, hay crops, run some beef cattle. Yeah, that's sort of what my business is. But around me, I've got broadacre cropping like wheat and barley and canola and then an almond orchard and vineyard on other sides. So that's sort of what our agricultural drivers are around here. And I do have a dairy farm still remaining next to me, but there's not many left around this area anymore. No, and, and I guess one of the reasons we called and wanted to chat is because there aren't as many dairy farms left. But tell us, what are you busy with on the farm? You're, you would just be finishing up harvest right now? Yes, uh, grain harvest I only finished last week, which was a lot later than usual because we had an exceptionally wet spring last year, which is unusual for this area, but um, it was reflected in pretty big grain yields, so harvest was delayed because of that, and we've had rainfall throughout our harvest, which has caused some delays and, and obviously some growth of weeds and things that we didn't really need. So finished baling straw, 
yesterday and that will be sold to either a cattle feedlot or um, a dairy dairy business or bedding for some sort of operation and today I've got some small squares of lucerne or alfalfa probably called up your way mm-hmm. um, to do on a contract basis like I also I run my farm plus I do have a contracting hay and silage business as well so that sort of keeps me keeps me busy because yeah my farm's only about 520 acres so it's it's not huge but we do irrigate half of that's irrigated with center pivots so well it's funny that you you say you struggled with weather and harvest this year and it just goes to show that farming is the same whether we're in this hemisphere or the one that you're in yeah, having a wet spring wasn't a struggle for Australian farmers, though. That's pretty unusual for us. So that's reflected in bigger yields and that slow harvest along with the rain because obviously logistics of moving that harvest has been pretty tricky. So you did milk cows at one time? Uh, yeah, I um, milked cows for the last 20 years up until April last year. So I have had a fairly long history in the in the dairy industry. Like I left home and worked in the city for a while and then came home. And yeah, I've been home nearly 21 years on the farm and we've milked cows all of that time up until April last year. So you've operated a dairy under supply management and then through the deregulation of supply management and then post-supply management. <laughs> Yeah, I'll explain a bit how that worked. Like um, prior to the year 2000, we supplied obviously milk and in South Australia or most states of Australia, the price for white drinking milk and flavoured milk was regulated and then the um, we had, there was a, a fixed price for the market milk component and then a manufacturing milk component that was a floating price that went up and down. In the year 2000, the... So James, just want to back up one second to make sure that we understand. So you had a a two-tier pricing system, fixed price for fluid milk. Was that based on cost of production? Yeah, that was sort of negotiated between government and industry. It's sort of right at the start of my time, so I'm not exactly how sure how it was um, negotiated, but it was... There was a price negotiated and, and that's what that part of it was. And then, yeah, the manufacturing milk was just set by the, the milk processor that they set that price. Right. And the manufacturing milk, a lot of that would have been for an export market or was that domestic as well? It would have been for both the domestic cheese market and for exporters. And then in the year 2000, the Australian dairy industry was completely deregulated. That was driven by federal and state government competition policy. There was payments made to state governments from the federal government if industries were deregulated. So industries such as the wheat industry was deregulated, chicken, pork, barley, dairy and a lot of other things along the way were deregulated. It was pretty much driven like it was driven from government and also the Victorian dairy industry as the other part of the industry in Australia producing about two-thirds of milk, they thought that deregulating would mean they would get access to liquid milk markets in um, New South Wales and Queensland, which they thought would deliver higher prices to their farmers. So, yeah, it was driven from government and the industry. And also the dairy industry was able to negotiate a, a, a levy on drinking milk at that point and $1.8 billion was delivered to dairy farmers around 
Australia, depending on how much of the um, market milk, like the white drinking milk, you supplied. So if you're in a state like Victoria, which only supplied a small amount of drinking milk, you got paid a smaller amount of money. And then if you're in a state like Queensland, where basically all of the milk goes to the drinking milk market, you were compensated far more. And it even gets a bit more complicated because in South Australia and Victoria, the, it was all sort of divvied up. The drinking milk and the manufacturing milk was divvied up evenly across the state, whereas in Queensland and New South Wales, those farmers had milk quotas to supply white milk to the market and they had a value because they were tradable, a tradable sort of asset. So they were paid out on their quota more so than just their share. So that did make it a bit more complicated. So James, that's the system that we're in here in Canada right now. We have milk yep. quotas and they yep. have a value. And of course, this issue keeps coming up about deregulation. I'm curious how this was presented to the dairy industry. What was the rationale given for why it was so important to deregulate the system? I think the rationale was driven by federal and state governments' determination to deregulate industries. And I think the dairy industry at the time saw the inevitability of what was going to happen and Victorian industry pushed for deregulation to happen. And there was a, a leader at the time, Pat Rowley was the leader of the dairy lobby at the time, and he, like, it was obvious this was going to be forced upon us and he negotiated, helped negotiate the package of of support to help people adjust to a new regime. So, so James, um, let me make let me make sure that I understand what you're saying correctly. So, you had one big player in a geographic region that wanted yes. the market deregulated, and another player in a different geographic region that had their own system that was working fine and that didn't yep. want it deregulated. Yes, that's correct. Well, but, that sounds eerily familiar to the situation yes, we have with Canada sounds, and the US. Sounds a bit sounds a bit like the US and Canada. I know. So. I don't want to draw any obvious parallels there. <laughs> yeah, I did travel to Canada in about, when was it, 2004 or five. So I sort of have been on farm and had a bit of a look around and, and in the US as well. So I sort of understand reasonably well where your industries was at at that point and sort of have followed since. Okay, so were you here in the summer or the winter? Uh, it was, must have been in your autumn because it was just our spring coming up. So yeah, it was would have been your fall. Okay, because if it was winter, you'd never want to come back again. No. <laughs> no, no. No. Okay, so deregulation happens, starts in 2000. What does yep. that transition process look like? Uh, the transition process looked positive at the time from a production point of view because obviously the dairy farmers, the $1.8 billion of cash that we all received, that was uh, payments made from the federal government over a, oh, I can't remember, I think it was a, eight-year period, but um, a lot of people used that finance to expand their operations, buy more land, build new dairies and things like that. So we had pretty good seasonal conditions and Australia's milk production sort of after deregulation actually went up about 10 or 15%, which, yeah, that was, everyone thought that was fantastic. And then after about 18 months, supply problems started to appear in terms of lack of infrastructure to process that milk and then global supply problems of dairy increase and the prices started to go down. In that 18 months where things were good, did politicians make a great big fuss and tout what a success this was? Uh, I don't really remember any politicians. <laughs> I'm guessing they probably did, James. If they're like politicians here, they would have. 
Yeah, <laughs> I think everyone was more worried about how they're going to spend their money and what they were going to do. So, yeah, and and on reflection, some people made some pretty good choices back then, and others blew all their money. So, yeah. but there's no other way to look at that payment that was made to dairy farmers as anything other than a subsidy. Uh no, that was a basically a, a subsidy or a or a thank you for um, letting your industry become deregulated. So that's that's what it was. For our business, it was quite interesting because the dairy adjustment payment was made on your production of about 18 months before deregulation happened. And as I'd only just recently come home to the farm and expanded production, like we were only paid on about two-thirds of the milk that we were actually producing at the time of deregulation. So some people gained the market, like set up businesses knowing this was might be in the wind and gained a bit of a advantage by cashing in on it and other people who were expanding their businesses sort of didn't get as much money as what they probably should have been entitled to at the time so um yeah it, it was was interesting like some people obviously used that that package to retire out of the industry or to retire debt but many people used it to expand their businesses which is what the government would have wanted them to do, and then probably were trying to build more of an export market for dairy at that time. Yeah, yeah. Like back in those days, Australian exports were nearly 65% of Australia's production, and now we're down to our production. Like our production post deregulation went up to about 11.5 billion litres, and I think this year Australia's production might even dip under 9 billion litres, and our population in that time's gone from about 15 million people to 22 million people. So domestic consumption is consuming roughly about 65% of Australia's milk produced now. So the dominant destination for Australia in dairy production now is the domestic market. You're not exporting a bunch of milk to China? Uh, we're exporting some cheese and milk powder, which is only about 35% of Australia's production. But yeah, like the the, the China story is a, a good story, and that's about it. As you guys may know, or you may have heard stories about a successful, or what was a relatively successful organic um, infant formula exporter out of Australia, like they have been a successful business, but they've been using mainly New Zealand and European organic ingredients, dairy ingredients to export to China. So the, the China story... There has been some success around infant formula and China continues to be, well, it is Australia's biggest trading partner, but for dairy, there's a lot of stories about great success, but actually making it happen is a lot harder than what people think. Well, and of course, we are being told that exact same story right now, that supply management is keeping dairy farmers from taking advantage of all these wonderful export markets. And I don't mean to sound cynical, although I yep. suppose that does come through somewhat. Since deregulation, all that it's meant is that the, there is a huge amount more volatility in our milk price or in farmers' milk price, and it was when I was milking cows. And you just see, like, you you see what happens with New Zealand. The milk price goes up and then supply increases. And then as milk production reaches oversupply, prices then reduce to farmers and you get paid less and then the whole cycle goes again. Um, and since the Europeans have reduced the way they um, subsidise their farmers in, in terms of stockpiling and then putting that product on the market, which used to flatten out prices, or since that's been reduced, like the market 
market from to milk has become a lot more volatile and there is opportunities in that volatility but there's also um, challenges as well so if you if you're a genius and can pick the market going up and down or you'll do well out of it but if you're just trying to chug along and and continue your business that can be pretty damaging for your business it depends what stage of business development you're in if you expand at the same time as the price collapse or you can go broke and and if you expand when the price is heading up you can you can win but it's just far more volatile than what it was and Margins in dairy continue to, to shrink through increase in wages, energy costs, and then depending on what grain prices and fertilizer prices are doing at the time as well. So James, can you give us a bit of an idea? What would a farm gate milk price have been pre-deregulation and sort of where would it be now? Uh, pre-deregulation, our milk price was probably somewhere around $4 a kilo of milk solids for our total milk production, which is probably, in Aussie dollar terms, about 28 or $0.30 cents a litre. And currently, the, the milk price in Australia, I think Fonterra just announced a step up to, to $5.20 a kilo milk solids. I think Murray Goulburn's under, under 5 still. Um, some of the processors who mainly focus on the domestic drinking market, I'm talking southern Australian prices, are closer to $6 a kilo milk solid. So six six bucks is about $0.42 cents a litre and, and $5 is about $0.35 cents a litre. So if you look at look at the big picture, the, the milk price hasn't moved a lot in the last 15 or 20 years. But through that period of time, we've had milk prices as high as $7 a kilo milk solids, which was yeah pretty profitable for most farmers in Australia or southern Australia at the time. And that was purely driven by the export market at the time and the big boom in, in China, buying out of mainly out of New Zealand, but that drove everyone's price up. So you can see that the the price volatility, like there's nearly $2, $2 a kilo milk solids difference in that price, which is about 20 cents. Australian can make a pretty huge difference to your dairy business. And what would break-even price be? Uh, break even in Australia is somewhere between, or southern Australia is somewhere between $5.60 and $6 a kilo milk solids, I'd say. So at current prices, most Australian dairy farmers down south in Victoria and South Australia and Tasmania would be going backwards. Some with low levels of debt would be achieving a, a profit, but many dairy farmers would be going backwards. And what about the consumer? Has the price of milk in the store stayed relatively stable in the last 15 years? When um, deregulation happened, the like the 10-centilitre levy was added to, to white milk and the price came back a bit because obviously the manufacturers are getting the milk a bit cheaper. But then in the year 2011, one of the um, big supermarkets in Australia, the, the our supermarkets are pretty much dominated by two major players which control about 86 percent of the market so one of those had um, some uk executives come out and they decided they were going to sell milk for a dollar a litre so the milk price at that point in the supermarket was about a dollar 28 a litre and they pulled back their home brand or their their um, proprietary brand milk back to a dollar a litre which then pulled other branded milk prices down as well so that now makes up about half of white milk sold is sold through the, the discount supermarket. So it's been an ongoing sort of issue with farmers pretty disgruntled about the fact that milk's devalued in the eyes of consumers and and that has limited abilities of the some of the processes to make a 
make a profit out of that white milk to the supermarkets. But the problem is they have jumped in a lot of the processes and done a deal on the cheap milk so they can get other products like cheese and yogurt on the shelves. So it's it's an ongoing saga. That didn't happen till 11 years after deregulation of the industry happened. So the the two those two things are linked, but they're not didn't happen at the same time. So that's sort of what's happened in Australia. So the domestic market in Australia is extremely competitive for, for milk and cheese and, and the margins are quite slim to the processes, which considering Australia, probably along with Canada, is a, a market where you've got consumers who are probably the most affluent in the world, but they get really cheap dairy products. So that sort of frustrates a lot of farmers. So this is the question that everybody here is going to want to know the answer to. In your opinion, and, and I know it's not completely fair, but was the dairy industry better off post-supply management or was the system working okay the way it was? It's, it's tricky because... I told you it was an unfair question right yeah. off the bat, yeah. Yeah, the, the system was working in some regions for farmers quite well. Places like New South Wales and Queensland where there was a quota system and farmers were locked into a, a, a good price, that was that was good. And those farmers sort of knew where they were at and what their future was and the demand for their milk was fairly stable and the production of that milk was fairly stable. Whereas the southern milk market in Victoria, like putting a restriction on on growth in an area that could be developed more as a dairy region, therefore put a cap on the ability for new players to come into the market and, and things like that. So you could argue that some people would be better off and some people wouldn't be down south, but the issue is how do you transition to the next generation of dairy farmers? Like how can you get people into the industry? And yeah, like without any quota or any restriction for people entering the industry it makes it easy for people to come in and well not easy because you still have to buy obviously cows and and land and like people can come in and start whereas if you have to buy quota and things before you can come in and start that does make it more difficult but from a canadian point of view you can easily argue that well, buying quota as well is securing your future for for long term but when like Victoria was a, a major exporting region that still exports a lot of product overseas, but it's not as much as what it was in the past. But we do have the biggest dairy exporter on our doorstep with the Kiwis, and we've got a special trade arrangement with them, and our cheese needs to be competitive with their cheese because they can put it on the shelf with no restriction at all into this country. So that does make it pretty tricky for what happens here. Well, that might be the most political answer to a question that anyone's ever given me, which maybe shouldn't surprise me because you have had a stint as a politician. I've been an attempted politician. At the last federal election, I ran for a group called the Nick Xenophon team, which is a sort of a, a centrist political party, which is headed up by a, a chap called Nick Xenophon, who's a lawyer who's been involved in Australian politics for the last 20 years. Wait, he, did he name the political party after himself? <laughs> oh, I think he might have. Oh, he, I think they have that like, in the US right now. I think it's called the Trump Party. <laughs> Some people say Nick and, and Donald are similar, but he vehemently disagrees. But um, Nick's a, a good fellow who has the interest of agriculture and, and farming as one of his key platforms. He did originally run on a, a no pokies platform, which I don't know if you've got poker machines or one-armed bandits. That, oh, slot that, machines. Yeah, slot machines. Yeah, like in, in our country, Australia has the 
biggest um, losses from gambling anywhere in the world and um, slot machines or, or poker machines are prevalent in a lot of hotels like bars and casinos and stuff and they are a pretty detrimental thing and he's campaigned on reducing the number of them and making people's losses be less than what they were from those machines which he's worked on for a long time but Nick's someone that's prepared to look at all issues on the table and come up with reasonable outcomes and he's more of a he's not a right-wing person or a left-wing person he's more of a centrist so um and in, he was a politician in the south australian state parliament and he did hold the balance of power in that parliament at at one stage and now him and a no- number of other senators and a house of representatives member are in the federal parliament of australia and it's a pretty finely balanced arrangement and in the senate nick is part of what they call the crossbench and in australia we've got labor and liberal parties which are the two sort of main opposing parties and then in the senate they the liberal or labor party need the crossbench on their side to get legislation through at the moment so he has um quite a bit of influence in what goes on which is good and he he does focus a lot on um, the, the dominance of the, the supermarkets in the Australian context and how that does its impact back on, on farmers, not only in dairy, but in many other commodities where they continue to, to put pressure on, on farmers and processes of agricultural commodities to get them at the lowest price. So he has been working hard on standing up for, for farmers. So that's why I put my hand up to run. I ran in a um, seat that has never changed hands before. It's always been a conservative seat and has been held that way for over 90 years. And I I lost on a like because in Australia there's a preferential voting system. So I got nearly 30% of the primary vote and then they split the preferences from other parties and I lost about 54 to 46. So I got pretty close for a very safe seat, which I was pretty happy about. Well, good for you for tossing your hat in the ring. Australia would be a fairly liberal country, would you say? Liberal in, in the US sense or liberal in Australian sense? Because in the in Australia, the Liberal Party is the Conservative Party. Um, <laughs> and I think I, I think that might be why the President of the US might be a bit confused, but I'm, I'm not sure. <laughs> he does seem miffed with Australia right now. Uh, yeah, no, he does. But then he doesn't appear to be on great terms with anybody just at the moment. In, in fairness, Donald Trump was elected as the president of the US. So in Australia, we elect a, a different side and the country does get behind their leader to a certain extent because that they have been elected. So you mean you elect, you elect a politician and then everybody gets on board with the democratic process? That's a novel concept. <laughs> well, you can't do much about it until the next election. What is the average Australian's attitude about how their food is produced? What do they think of farmers? Farmers are regarded fairly highly like. If, if surveys are done, farmers are regarded up there as, like, you've got, obviously, used car salesmen and politicians down the bottom of the list, and farmers are at the top with doctors and people like that. So it's an important part of Australia. There is can tend to be a bit of negative press in the, the media about agriculture in terms of farmers struggling with floods or struggling with drought conditions. But overall, I think farmers are perceived as being people that are trying to do their best to look after things. Like Obviously, animal activists and people like that will continue to target agriculture as they do all over the world. But yeah, agri- agriculture and farming is a fairly trusted profession. People think it's important. What people say about supporting farmers and what they do when they go to the supermarket and buy something can probably be a bit different, but farmers are seen as in a pretty positive light. 
What are the biggest issues that Australian farmers face today? What do you think the biggest challenges are? At the moment, if you're involved in any energy intensive industry, electricity is a big challenge to you because in Australia we've got obviously a big country with not that many people in it so we've got a fairly massive energy network which needs to be maintained and upgraded and that a lot of that's owned by overseas interests which get a nice handy earner out of it so that's that's a bit of a challenge and then we're in the process of shifting from sort of conventional energy to renewables like even though Australia still is probably over 80% coal-fired at the moment. In my state here of South Australia, the two coal-fired power stations were shut down last year. So our reliance on wind, solar and, and probably more so gas at the moment is quite high. And the the demand for gas has meant that there's been an expansion of coal seam gas extraction and fracking and that has impacted on a lot of regional New South Wales and Queensland on farmland where drilling operations are going on, opening up gas wells and pipelines are being put in those regions for export and for domestic markets. So that, that's impacting agriculture in some regions of Australia. I suppose Australian agriculture is going reasonably well but one of the challenges for us is when the commodities boom of iron ore and coal and those kind of things is on, our dollar appreciates in value. So it makes us less competitive in the export market. So that does put a lot of pressure on both like manufacturers in Australia and farmers because we obviously, I'm a grain grower and most of that grain is going to end up in a boat going to another country. And if our currency is going up, we've got a fairly big problem. So that's, that's a challenge. As it is here in Canada, we're very much in the same situation. And things we don't have any control over will impact the prices that our farmers get paid for grains. Yeah, you're similar to us. And yeah, because it's a bit different for me because I've gone from a what was pretty much a domestic only industry in terms of dairy to now a more of an export focused industry, beef, cattle, grain, Loosen seed and or alfalfa seed, which are all exported. So export is is important, and there's a lot of talk about trade agreements. And like obviously Australia has signed some deals recently, which is a reduction in tariffs and and so forth. And people say trade agreements of of benefit, but really, if another country really wants what you produce, they'll buy it with whatever restrictions are in place anyway. So and. Like There's been a lot of talk about the TPP here at the moment, but the mo- economic modelling for us being a part of the TPP sees a, like a 0.5% increase in employment over 20 years, which is, is tiny. I think a lot, of con- a lot of countries have been sold on major benefits of TPP when in fact they are relatively minor. Yeah. James, before we wrap it up here, what, would, what do you most want Canadians to know about Australian farming? Australian farming can be a challenge, but it can be a rewarding opportunity as well. It is a, an interesting place to farm. Like We don't have reliability of, of seasons, but Australian farmers are extremely adaptable to what conditions are presented to them and will continue to be we operate pretty much in an open market and we organize ourselves and our businesses to continue to thrive and, and succeed in that market and we, we get around the challenges that are ahead of us well like most farmers that i know over here you sound like an optimist which is something that you have to be <laughs> to be a farmer. James, I enjoy yep. following you on Twitter and, and seeing what you're up to. Give everybody your Twitter handle. My Twitter handle is James underscore Stacy underscore. 
yeah, if people want to see some what I'm up to in Australia or see me have a discussion or argument with a few people, you'll, you'll find me on there. And, and I like, like the banter that happens between farmers around the world. Like I think farmers love having a look at what everyone else is doing. So Twitter's just opened that platform to the whole world. And it's fantastic to be able to communicate with people everywhere, see what's going on. I couldn't agree more, James. And I appreciate yep. you taking the time to chat with us from overseas. This has been the Ontario AgCast. Please go back to Twitter and give us a retweet. Go to iTunes and give us a rating. If this is the last show we ever do, it's been fun. If not, we'll see you next time.